Good morning again. Good morning again. Anybody? Anybody out there? Okay, here we go. We are uh, in our series on Genesis, and uh, this fall in particular, we're going through the life of Abraham. We're at chapter 15, and there's a few chapters in the life of Abraham that are really important. Uh, One's around which sort of everything else hinges, and this is one of them. So we're going to be reading uh, all of chapter 15 this morning, Uh, so starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Urshites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray that he would speak to us by his word. Father, we... Thank you for your word, that we are not left to guess our way into your presence, that we're not left to make up what is convenient about who you are, but you've spoken so we could could know you, so that we could be near to you. So speak by your word, we pray this morning in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever found yourself saying, I think of God as blank. 
or I like to think of God as blank. Probably a lot of us have. I think I have before, probably said something to that extent. But it's, all, but it's a very common thing people will say. Right? I, I like to think of God as X. And sometimes we fill that in with kind of colloquialisms, right? The big man upstairs, things like that. Sometimes we fill it in with uh, tropes from you know, movies we've seen, whatever it is. What, what, what is interesting, though, when we say that we like to think of God as something or another, is usually what we're saying is, I like to relate to God that way. So whether that is, I want a God who is convenient for me to deal with when I want to deal with him, or I want a God who is not going to mess with the things that I do. And one of the things I was thinking about on the anniversary of September 11th, and this is not a September 11th sermon, but one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, there's a specific way those who flew planes into buildings thought of how they relate to God. And there's a specific way that you or I think about God, and the question is, is that really the way God talks about it? The category that God uses to talk about how he relates to us is the category of the covenant. That's kind of a big religious-y word. Uh, Certainly in Presbyterian circles, we drop that word all the time. We like to name churches uh, with it. We, We talk about it a lot. Sometimes I'm not sure we know what it means, though. So it's really important if you're a Christian to understand what the idea of the covenant is. So you have a clearer understanding of what it means to really relate to God, at least the way the Bible talks about it, the way that God really wants us to meet him. If you're not a Christian, it's also important for you to understand that, this is, that relating to God is not just a category that you get to fill in the blanks for. But as we'll see, it's better than that. It's better than a kind of fill-in-the-blank religion. God has shown us the way that he meets us. In a covenant. So we're going to talk about its covenant relationships have a purpose, a pattern, and power. Purpose, pattern, power. So, the purpose of the covenant. Notice in verse 1, God shows up to Abram in a vision. We don't actually know how God spoke to Abram in other times. If we just, if he just heard a voice, it's not really told. We're told he sees a vision, though I'm not sure what that is, at least until verse 17. But the vision up front, I don't know what it is, uh, but he sees, uh, he sees God in some sense, and God says to him, fear not, I am your shield. Fear not. But what's Abram's response to God showing up and trying to assure him, right? Abram goes to think about the two things God has already promised. God has promised that he would be a great nation, and that they would occupy this land. In other words, he promised a people and a place. And those are the two things Abram asks about. In verses 2 through 4, he says, look, you promised we'd, have, we'd be a great nation, that there would be a lot of people coming for me, but I don't have any heirs. I'm childless. I'm going to have to adopt one of these chief servants of my household, which apparently was a thing in the ancient Near East. We have other documents to talk about it, but that's, that's what the, you would do. And he says, what, 
I won't have an heir. I don't have any. And of course, God's response then is to take him outside. Have you ever, you know, some of you like camping, right? Some of you, some of you like getting out in the outdoors. If you ever get away from a lot of light pollution, right, and you look up at the sky, you realize there are way more stars than you usually think about, than you usually see living in and around a city. When I was in the Navy, we'd be out in the middle of the Atlantic at night, about as far away from light pollution as you can get. I guess you could be in the middle of the Pacific, which would be a little, <laughs> a little more. But, uh, you know, and you, it's just overwhelming how many stars there are in the sky. It, back in chapter 13, he had told Abram it's going to be like the sand on the seashore. Right, so he reminds him of that promise. And then Abram in verse 8 says, but you also promised us that you would bring, give us land. God kind of reiterates it in verse 7, and he says, but how will we know? And then God starts to unfold what he's going to do. He tells Abram, after he puts him to sleep, and he says, look, here's how it's going to happen. All those people I promised you, well, they're actually going to go to another country. We know it's Egypt, <laughs> but he didn't tell Abram that. But, you know, they're going to go there, and they're going to be servants for 400 years. Not exactly the most exciting future for your descendants, right? He tells Abram, you're going to have, you personally, you're going to have a peaceful death. But look, I'm going to bring them out, and they're also going to be an instrument for judgment. In verse 16, did you notice this? He says he's going to bring them back because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites is a, apparently a summary way of talking about the people in the promised land. Their sin is not yet complete. And we get a map of who those people are at the very end of the passage. Uh, there's kind of that list of all these different people, which, you know, we have a tendency to sort of fall asleep in the middle of these lines, right? That kind of lists different people groups and all. But what it's basically saying is these are all the folks that are going to come under judgment. In other words, what's fascinating here is that they're going to be an instrument of God's judgment even in the midst of this. But here's something else. Abram is looking for assurance. But the assurance is more than simply that he will have a people in a place. It is that he will have God himself. The people in, a play, in the place may be proof that God is reliable. But the whole purpose is that he would have God, right? This is what he says, fear not, right? I am your shield. And then the next line, which in, in the ESV that we have printed, says, your reward shall be very great. Some of you may know that there's other translations that handle this differently. If you read the old King James or if you know the NIV, it says, I am your shield, your very great reward. Uh, okay, the deal is... Grammatically, there's no being verb in that last line. In Hebrew, it says, your reward, very great. Uh, sometimes a being verb is implied, 
We do this a little bit in English every once in a while, not that much, but it's common in a lot of languages. And so one way to understand this is that God is saying, I'm your shield and also your reward shall be very great. The other way to understand it is that there isn't supposed to be one and that your reward being, that your great reward is simply a restatement, a different angle on what it means that God is their shield. Now, both things, so both are grammatically legitimate options. Both are theologically accurate options. Uh, I'm not entirely certain, though I think it probably reads better in the NIV. I am your shield, that is your very great reward. The promise that God is giving is not only that he will have all these things, but that he will have God himself. Remember, this story comes on the heels, if you were with us last week, of Abraham refusing a reward from the king of Sodom. And God shows up and reminds him that he has a great reward. It will be his, yes, yes, the people that descend from him, yes, the, pl- the place that they'll occupy, but it will be God himself that is his reward. And so God enters into this covenant as a way of giving assurance. This covenant is a relationship that has purpose to it. Most of our relationships don't necessarily have a lot of purpose to them, right? Um, and that's okay, not all of them need to, but... You know, when you're in school, right, who are your friends? The people you just go to school with, right? <laughs> I mean, because that's who you're around all the time. You, you get to know people at work, right? And they become your friends, which is fine. That's good, but they're just your friends because you just spend a lot of time with them. And that's, that's fine. Maybe your neighbors, right, because you see them all the time and you're interacting all the time. All that is fine, but a covenant is something more. Covenant is a relationship that has purpose. And that purpose in particular when it pertains to God is also our assurance. God is giving a structured relationship in order to give assurance to Abram. And And he's engaged in a covenant relationship with us so that we can have confidence that he will do what he says. We're going to get into the details of how, of how it's laid out, but it's for our confidence. And, and Calvin says this in his commentary. He says, whoever will be fully persuaded that his life is protected by the hand of God and that he never can be miserable while God is gracious to him and who consequently resorts to this haven in all his cares and troubles will find the best remedy for all evil. Not because... The faithful are entirely free from fear and care as long as they're tossed about by the tempest of contentions and miseries. In other words, this is the best thing for you, not because you're free from all those cares, but because the storm is hushed in their own breast. Get that? It's a very long sentence to get to this point, right? That the more that we understand that God is our protector, that he is faithful, the more we can actually weather those storms because we understand who God is, that he will protect us. And, uh, and this, is, this stands in contrast then, this kind of re- covenant relationship, to a generic relationship with God. You know, the stuff evangelicals talk about all the time. We have, we're supposed to have a personal relationship with God. 
which is true, but the question is what kind of relationship, right? The more generically we talk about that, the greater danger that we just sort of interpret it on our own. That we come with our own set of expectations, which may or may not have anything to do with what God has promised. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've sat with people who are dealing with something and, and they're communicating so clearly. I mean, sometimes they actually verbalize it that they thought God would protect them from this. And I thought, why? God did never promise that. You see, we had cre- they, they've created, and we all do it, an understanding of our relationship with God that we fill the content of and we expect him to follow through on. In other words, the more generic our understanding of our relationship, the more discouragement we invite. That's the, that's the reality of having a vague notion of what it means to be in a relationship with God, is that we actually invite discouragement. Because when my situation isn't what, it sh- what I think it should be, I think, God's letting me down. Well, is he? Did he promise the, that to me? I don't, not usually. Or how about this? When my feelings are up and down. And let's be honest, our feelings are often up and down. I think, well, where's God in the midst of all this? And the point is, he didn't promise me that things would feel good all the time, especially right now. Remember, remember what Abram has promised about his descendants. What instead we are told is that God will see us through our situations, that God will see us through the ups and downs emotionally, that God will see us through. So the covenant, in other words, gives us confidence that God is reliable. It tells me what to expect from him and what not. It tells me ultimately that what I should be seeking is him for himself. You know, the one, the one way, or you know, real, pretty much the one way we use the word covenant now in the modern world is to talk about marriages. You almost never hear the word any other place, maybe in a history book if you're into reading about history. But, the, uh, but marriage is the, the one place where that actually kind of comes up with some frequency. And the point is, right, that a marriage has some benefits to it, for sure, right? You can think about them, right? Studies have shown that, you know, if you're married, you're financially more stable over time. You know, there's other benefits from marriage, health benefits, you know, so that are you know, those who are married tend to have better health in general. There's, there's other things like that that come out of it. But of course, the real thing you get out of marriage is the relationship with the other person. Whatever those other benefits are, and I'm not implying everybody should be married. <laughs> but I am saying like in this one case where we do talk about a covenant, right, we actually know what it's for. It's not really for your financial gain. It's not really for your health. It is for the relationship. 
And this is so interesting, right? Because like we've said, God, God sees them through the ups and downs. And God pulls back the curtain just a little bit on the way in which the other things that God is doing in the world are related to his, saving his people. That's one of the most fascinating things. We're not going to talk about judgment here. There's going to be another sermon down the road where we'll talk more in depth about God's judgment. Uh, needless to say, the people that occupied the promised land were into child sacrifice and a whole host of other things. So if you're really bothered by the judgment piece, you know, you can take a, a little peace of mind from that kind of thing. But what we see is that God is, going, God is delaying, in some sense, giving the land because he is also going to use his people as a means of judgment. And that's a weird thing to think through, right? It means that God has his own timing because God's doing a lot more than just what is going on in my life individually or my family or this church. But God has other things, right? And this keeps us from another kind of major relationship hurdle in religion, which is trying to read the tea leaves, right? Trying to understand like, oh, what, is, what exactly is God doing here? And there's many a preacher who's fallen into the trap of looking around and saying, well, they can, they can tell the, what's going on right now. Some will claim spiritual authority. Some will claim to be astute observers of the culture. Others will t- talk about other things, right? And what we're trying to do is read the tea leaves over what is, will and won't work, what will and won't make our church grow, what is or isn't going on in my life, and how, what God is or isn't doing. And we are warned away from that kind of thing. God doesn't tell us that. Instead, he tells us that he is faithful to see us through. And that he will bring us home. Part of how that works out is in the pattern of the covenant, right? That that is what God's purpose is, but there's a pattern that's given, and, and this starts to flesh out more about what we mean. A covenant, and we can look at all kinds of ancient Near Eastern sources to actually find this out, uh, but has a pattern to it. There's always a bit, of, uh, a bit of historical background, particularly of how the, you know, when we're talking about covenants between a ruler and another ruler or a ruler and his people, there's always a historical background that tells us how good he's been, right? Which is, of course, verse 7. I'm the Lord who brought you out of the order of the Chaldeans to give you this land. It... it outlines, you know, the parties that are involved, which is, of course, pretty clear. Uh, Obligations that are involved, God's making promises here, isn't he? And there's always a kind of a sign that's given. We see Abram starting, he seems to know what God wants him to do, by the way, when he tells him to gather these animals and he cuts them in half. It's kind of gruesome, right? Uh, there's most of these signs in a covenant were blood signs. The point being, of course, that this is a bond made in blood. It's not just a contract for an exchange of goods and services, right? That this is that we are forging a kind of bond in blood together. The breaking of which, of course, is also a blood. Letting punishment. 
but there's, there's two things to understand then about the covenants, though. I mean, that's some of how it works. But there are two types of covenants, really. That, and we see this also in ancient Near Eastern sources, so not just the Bible. Uh, but it's crystal clear in the Bible that there are covenants of promise and there are covenants of obligation. Now, God started and creation with a covenant of obligation with Adam and Eve, right? Do this and you'll live. That fails, though, and what God is doing here, and this is really, in some sense, the clearest beginning of it, a covenant of promise that he is going to follow through and he's going to give. And the difference is, this is the covenant of obligation is a covenant of law. You do this, and it'll go well for you. You don't do this, and it'll go badly. A covenant of promise, though, has no obligation to those who are recipients of it. It is simply a king who's giving something. And this would be a way for a king to say, look, I'm I'm making a big promise to you. And to prove that I will follow through with it, we're going to cut a covenant together. We're going to make a covenant together so that you can have confidence that I will follow through with it. And that's what we have here. Paul picks this up in Galatians 3. If you, some of you may remember this, Paul is talking about the law and the gospel, law and grace. And he says, this is what I mean, the law, meaning the law of Moses, which came 430 years after this particular moment, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abram, Abraham, by promise. It might be a little complicated, but what he's saying, right, is that even though there's a degree of kind of obligation in the Mosaic law, that's a complicated thing. We'll talk about it some other time. It doesn't doesn't nullify, it doesn't delegitimize the covenant of promise. The covenant of promise comes first. So that the only way we relate to God is by the promises that he's given. If you don't want, and this is the flip side of it, to relate to God by the promises given, then you can revert to the law, to a covenant of obligation. And you can kind of try to come to God with what you bring to the table. I mean, those, in other words, those are the options, (laughs) This is how God made the world, and we failed. And he has given us, by his grace, another way. If you refuse the other way, you can go back to trying the other thing. But it doesn't really work. It's worked for exactly mm, zero people. Well, actually one. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is, a, this is to be bound together, right, as the, is in a covenant of promise, and it comes from God. This is, uh, as Justin put it when he and I were talking about this the other day, this is kind of God's DTR, you know, the define the relationship talk, you know, when, um, you know, when you're kind of interested in somebody else, you've been hanging out together, maybe you went on a couple dates, I don't know. You're not really sure what you're doing, right? You have to define the relationship. Eventually, somebody has to pull the ripcord, right? And say, what are we doing here? And of course, you know, if you're going to do that, the, you know, the person who's going to pull the ripcord to really do it well, right? You have to lay your own cards out on the table. 
This is what I'm into. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm into this relationship. I'm in it. That's exactly what God is doing in this covenant of, of uh, promise. Is he's saying, look, these are my intentions for you, and I will see them through. No matter what. The pattern is meant to give us that kind of to give us that kind of confidence, right? This is what I've done in the past. These are the promises of what I will do. And here is a sign to confirm it. That I will do it. I will see it through. So when we talk then about being in the covenant of God, we are talking about living within the context of God's promises. We talk, we talk about the church, especially in Presbyterian circles, as being a covenant community. And this is an important category, right? The ch- in other words, the church isn't a thing that we choose to be a part of. It is a community defined by God and his promises. Not by what we bring to the table. Not because we happen to like one thing or the other, but because God has called us together and God has promised to us. And so we're gathered around, no surprise, right? His word and in prayer and around the signs that he gives us of his new covenant, right? The sacraments. These are the things that bind us together, that make the church what it is. We are God's covenant people because he is at work in that kind of context through the ways that he promises. I'm not saying, by the way, that that means that everybody who's a member of the church is automatically saved, right? Just by showing up and taking the vows, you're saved, right? God still has to work individually. I mean, it was the same way in the Old Testament. It's the same way in the New Testament church. It's the same way now. But it is to say that we participate in the community that's shaped by his covenant that he's made with us. And we come together in that context because that's where he's promised to show up. Is in the midst of us listening to his word. Of offering him prayers. Of partaking in the sacraments. That these are the things that he's promised to work through. And that's why we show up. I'm not saying God doesn't work extraordinarily outside those bounds at times. Of course he does. There are stories about that, right? There's a thief on the cross, of course. There's other (laughs) things like that. But this is the normal way he shows up to meet us. And so this is my question then. And I think this is where the pattern of the covenant becomes really salient. Is where do you try to meet God? Where do you try to meet him? How? Is it going on a long walk? Is it going, you know, for a hike? Is it going to the beach and relaxing on the beach? All those things are fine. Wonderful, even. And you may... (laughs) end up having some sweet time and prayer in the middle of those sorts of things. But you get the point that God shows up in the ways that he promises. And again, one of those, one of those things that you hear as a pastor over and over and over again is how people are struggling 
They'll talk to you about how they're struggling with their relationship with God. They don't feel his presence. And you end up asking a few questions, right? Are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Have you availed yourself of the sacraments? Now, I won't say, let me be careful here. I'm not saying that it's automatic. But I can guarantee if you're not availing yourself of those things, I can tell you why you don't know where God is. Now, I'm not saying it's automatic. I'm not saying there aren't ups and downs in the midst of that. And there is some great mystery in these things. But are you looking elsewhere? Are you trying to figure out other ways to find God without going to his word? Without going to him in prayer? Without coming to the table? Because if you are, you're trying to invent things that are outside of his covenant. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't, can't possibly work in some of those ways. I am saying he's told you where you can find him. And if you need to find him, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, these are the places to go. This is what he has bound himself to. And all that is to say that he meets us in power. This is the third point. The covenant is a powerful relationship, and we've already talked about the ritual a little bit of the cutting in half that is a blood ritual. In fact, the term in Hebrew for making a covenant, the verb used is cutting. You cut a covenant because it's, it's a bond in blood. It almost always involves some sort of ritual that at least implies violence. It's cut. The covenant is cut. And God shows up, and notice this, he puts Abraham to sleep. Again, this is a covenant of promise. Not a, this is not a covenant of obligation. And to make sure Abram doesn't get in the way, puts him to sleep. And God shows up in what's, you know, the, the jargony word is in a theophany, an appearance of God in some form. And guess what it is? Fire and smoke. Fire and cloud. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That not how God met them in the wilderness in the Exodus? Is that not over and over and over again the images of, of God's appearance? I think it's no mistake, of course, that the theophanies are usually fire and smoke, the two things that it's really hard to actually have any kind of form to represent. It is fire and smoke. These are the things that God always kind of seems to appear as. And he alone goes through to say that, so that the symbol of the ritual is applied to him. That if this covenant isn't working, he will be the one that is torn apart. And so, 
part of what we learn from this whole story is that Abram is counted righteous by faith. Do you see that in verse 6? I wonder, if, I wonder if you know that verse. You may know that verse from other places too because it's quoted, I mean fully quoted in at least three places in the New Testament and alluded to many, many, many other times. <laughs> that Abram believes and it's counted to him as faith. It is a curious line, right? It is meant to say that, look, Abram is counted as righteous not because of what he's done, but the category of righteousness is always about what someone's done. Right? It's always about your performance, whether you've been a good person or not. And something curious is being told to us here, right? That there is a form of righteousness that we receive that is not by our own goodness. That we are counted righteous by putting faith in God. It is our faith, in other words, that receives what he offers. Faith isn't another word for a different type of action, right? Sometimes people treat faith as if it's this thing we've got to muster up. We've got to train. No, faith is receiving. Faith is taking what's been given. Now, it's not without result, right? We have a righteousness that is given, and then God will grow that right, grow righteousness in us. I mean, it's not to say those, that righteousness never grows in the heart of those who believe, but the righteousness that makes that we're accountable for. Paul will use language of the court system when he talks about justification. It's a little bit hidden in English, but the root of that word is also the same root as righteousness. But the uh, but the idea he'll use the idea of a court. That we are counted as righteous, right? We are, the verdict is in on our lives. That we are counted as righteous. Not by what we have done, but by what we've received by faith. Which is the connection to the ritual being performed here. See, it is not just that we trust in God in some generic sense. But as we trust that he has actually fulfilled the promised covenant once and for all. Because it is at the moment that God decides to make good on the promise that he sends his son. Not just to give a people that is merely the descendants of Abraham, not to give a land that is merely a plot of land in the Middle East, But when he decides to make good on what those things were ultimately picturing, the redemption of all of his people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, the restoration of the whole world, not just a plot of ground on the edge of the Mediterranean. It is when God decides to make good on that that he has to step in, into our skin, as it were, to take on flesh so that that flesh could be cut in two. Because we were not going to be righteous on our own. We weren't going to bring that to the table. Again, that is, that is an option that you can meet God with. 
And it fails every single time, except when God himself takes on flesh and becomes the righteous person that we were always supposed to be. And that's what faith is, right? Faith is not a generic understanding of God, a generic trusting in him. It is actually confidence that he has fulfilled everything that he has promised in Jesus Christ. Everything that he wants to give comes to us by what Jesus has done, by giving his flesh and blood for us. That's what faith really is. Faith is not, again, generic, like that relationship that we tend to think of as generic. Faith is trusting in God that he has fulfilled all the promises of the covenant, has not failed on one single one, that he has given us everything we need in Jesus, and that when we trust in him, We have confidence to come before him because we are counted as righteous because Jesus was righteous. That where we had failed, Jesus succeeded. That where death loomed over our lives, Jesus defeated it. That is our confidence, is that God is a covenant-keeping God, that he would not let his covenant fail. So listen this morning. I don't know where you're coming from when you're thinking about your relationship with God. I have some clue about some of you. (laughs) People have also lied to pastors. I have some clues. But let me ask you this. What is it you want from God? Do you want your situation changed some way? Do you want to be more emotionally connected? Those things maybe will come. I think the emotional piece almost certainly will come at some point. (laughs) Actually, your situation will at some point change. But what God has promised is that he has dealt with sin and he has dealt with death. And that he himself is the very great reward that, we're whipping, that we've been waiting for our whole lives. That all those other things we want changed about our situation or about our own internal life are peanuts compared to what he has to offer. And all those things that we think we need changed are not nearly big enough. The promise that God has made by his covenant that he's fulfilled in his son, is that he is giving us himself. And he is giving us goodness that he will first give to us without any charge and that he will grow in our lives over time. So if you want to meet God, you've got to meet him in his covenant. But the good news is you only come by receiving. You don't have to bring anything of your own. And look, whether you're a Christian and you kind of know that, but need to be reminded, or whether this is the first time that you're hearing it or thinking about it, right? This is the beauty of the covenant that God has made with us, of the relationship that God has cut with us, is that we don't come on our own terms, but we come by His grace receiving what he gives by what he has already given in the body and blood of his son. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you meet us not in uh, silly inventions of our own, not in ways that we think we want, but might change our mind about a month from now. But rather you come giving us assurance because you've made a covenant. But more than that, you have fulfilled all of the obligations of the covenant, even even the punishments of the covenant so that it might be unbreakable. And we come to you looking only for what you give with nothing of our own. Thank you that you love us this deeply, that your love is this powerful. Teach us to seek you out not in ways that we imagine, but in the ways that you've laid out so we would find you and be assured. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.